Today, we have a pretty good understanding of what causes meteor showers. But like many things in science, there was a time that we didn't understand what was happening. That these blips of light that we see shooting through the sky are actually from space. Such was the case on a cold November night in 1833. That night, observers across North America saw a meteor storm. Some reports indicate that thousands of meteors fell per hour, perhaps 200,000 falling over the course of the nine hours of the storm. Imagine that for a moment. You're gazing up at the sky with your fellow townspeople on this cold winter night. The air is crisp with the coming winter. The wind whips around your jacket, and your cheeks turn red. As you look up, it seems like the stars themselves are falling from the heavens, almost as fast as snow. You have no idea what's going on. Is the world ending? Are the stars themselves falling from the sky? Is this an omen of something to come? Something awful? Or maybe something wonderful? In the Handbook of Descriptive and Practical Astronomy, they wrote, Upwards of one hundred lay prostrate on the ground, with their hands raised, imploring God to save the world and them. The scene was truly awful, for never did rain fall much thicker than the meteors fell towards the earth, east, west, north, and south. It was the same. As you might imagine, this event made an impact of the people around North America. The Lakota calendar was reset for this date. The Cheyenne established a peace treaty. This was before the Civil War, and slave owners, abolitionists, and Abraham Lincoln and Harriet Tubman themselves pondered the meaning. Even Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormon religion, wrote in his journal that he believed the 1833 event was a sign that the word of God will be fulfilled, and Jesus Christ was close to his second coming. This is Spark Dialogue Podcasts. You can find us at sparkdialogue.com, on Facebook and Twitter, and wherever you listen to your podcasts. Spark Dialogue tells the stories of science and technology and how they relate to our society, to history, philosophy, culture, and art. I'm your host, Elizabeth Fernandez. Today, I'm going to be telling you the story of meteors, meteor showers, and how we grew to understand what their meaning was. For the supporters of this podcast, check out the Patreon page, where you'll see a beautiful gallery of meteors and some information about coming meteor showers. If you're not a patron and you want to be, you can check out patreon.com sparkdialogue or find out more information on the website at sparkdialogue.com. In 1833, a few people were beginning to suspect the true origin of meteors, that they indeed came from space itself. But many people still were a little bit unsure, and certainly many of the general public didn't believe that these bright stars that were falling were actually little bits of rock burning up in the atmosphere. Such an event as the 1833 meteor storm probably struck fear and wonder into many people's hearts. Imagine for a moment that you witnessed such an event. What would you think? So where do meteor showers actually come from? As comets move through the solar system, they are constantly disintegrating, 
losing bits of dust and rock from their surface. This happens mostly about three times the distance from the Earth to the Sun, at about the orbit of the asteroid belt. At this distance, the Sun is warm enough to heat the surface of the comet, breaking off small bits. Most of these are small, about the size of dust grains, but some can be quite large. This leaves a path of rocks orbiting behind the comet called a meteor stream. When the Earth passes through this stream, we see a meteor shower. Once you know which comet is forming a dust stream, you can predict when meteor showers will happen and how powerful they will be by calculating where the Earth is and how recently the comet passed by. When you watch a meteor shower, the meteors will look like they are originating from the same point in the sky. This is called the radiant, and it shows where the meteor stream is. We didn't always know that meteors are actually rocks that are from space. If we go back far enough, people didn't even know that the Earth itself was a rock in space. It actually took quite a long time for people to figure out what meteors were and where they came from. Perhaps one of the most ancient records of a meteor shower is from 2,600 years ago, from the year 687 BC. Chinese astronomers documented that stars fell like rain. This is what we now know as a Lyrid meteor shower that happens in April. The ancient Greeks and Romans believed that meteor showers were herald that something bad, or maybe even good, was about to happen. One meteor shower occurred after the death of Cleopatra. A comet, of course closely related to meteor showers, was present before the death of Caesar. And some people believe that the Star of Bethlehem, heralding the birth of Jesus Christ, might have been a comet. Some thought that meteors were gifts from the angels, or a sign that the gods were angry. Meteor showers should be regular. We pass through meteor streams at the same location in the solar system every year, corresponding to close to the same calendar date. But throughout history, most people didn't notice the regularity of meteor showers. There is one interesting exception, and that's the Perseids. The Perseid meteor shower repeats every year in August. In 258 AD, St. Lawrence was martyred, most likely during this meteor shower. Early Christians noticed this, and they also noted the reoccurrence of the meteor shower during the month of August. These Christians called the meteor shower the Tears of St. Lawrence. Even before this, some ancient astronomers were pretty smart. In China, Korea, and Japan, astronomers made detailed accounts of meteor showers, so detailed that we can learn a lot from their observations. The Han Chinese recorded the Perseid meteor showers in stunning detail in 36 AD, and the Babylonians and Egyptians tracked comets, and may have even been able to guess at a connection between the meteor showers and comets. Fast forward to the 17th century. At that point, our ancestors were still trying to figure out how the universe worked. It was during this time that people were gradually replacing the idea that the Earth was the center of the universe with the theory that, in fact, the Earth was one of many planets that traveled around the Sun. At this time, people didn't think meteors were stars, or even from space at all. Instead, they believed they were associated with some type of weather. They were even called thunderstones. In 1763, 
a huge meteor broke up over Britain, traveling southward to France and Italy. Many people witnessed this event, and it left a lasting impression on them. Tiberius Cavallo, an Italian natural philosopher, wrote, Some flashes of lambent light, much like the aurora borealis, were first observed in the northern part of the heavens, which were soon perceived to proceed from a roundish, luminous body, whose apparent diameter equaled half of that of the moon. The ball first appeared of a faint bluish light, perhaps appearing just kindled, but it gradually increased in light, and soon began to move, at first ascending above the horizon in an oblique direction towards the east. Every object appeared very distinct, the whole face of the country being instantly illuminated. The meteor split up into several pieces. The explosion made a rumbling noise quite like thunder. People were beginning to suspect that these strange events in the sky weren't related to thunderstorms or any earthly event at all. In 1688, Edmund Haley compiled observations to compute that a fireball seen over the English countryside by several witnesses was actually traveling 160 miles a minute. Such a speed is faster than the Earth rotates. Something was up, he figured. He was on to something. Haley was able to calculate that the meteor was 40 to 50 miles high, higher than any atmospheric phenomenon was expected. Haley sat back and looked at his numbers. That couldn't be right. That was absurd. Remember, at this time, there was no photography. People couldn't whip out their smartphones to record the fireball zipping through the sky. Instead, Haley was relying on hand-drawn sketches and people's fuzzy memories. Was his calculation even right? He would later change his mind, but for the time being, Haley dismissed his own calculations and the observations that he compiled as impossibly crazy. A few years later, in 1759, John Pringle collected observations of a meteor seen in November 1758. From his observations, he also deduced that meteors travel at very high heights and had motions independent of the Earth's rotation in its path around the sun. But the difference was that Pringle actually believed his calculations. In his paper, he said, I believe it will appear that these revelations are not favorable to the prevailing hypothesis about the formation of such bodies, which make them to contain certain phosphorus vapors arising from the Earth. He went on to say that these meteors are 90 to 100 miles high when the atmosphere is ghastly thin. He concludes, The balls of fire come from regions far beyond the reach of our vapors. If they approach often to the earth, and seldom or never touch it, if they are moved with so much celerity, as in that respect they have to the character of celestial bodies, if they are seen flying in all directions, and consequently have a motion of their own, independent of that of our globe, Indeed, he concluded, these meteors came from space itself. Another piece of the puzzle was found by Benjamin Silliman, a Yale professor, in 1807. A massive fireball as bright as the full moon shot across the sky. With explosions that shook the countryside, the meteor broke up over New England. Silliman traveled to Connecticut, and along with another professor, James Kingsley, they hunted for the meteor. Finally, they found one of six pieces that actually made it to the ground, the largest at a whopping 36 pounds. Here was a chance to examine the meteor firsthand. Being a chemist, 
Silliman took a piece of the meteor and looked at what it was made of, and he deduced that meteors were not from Earth at all, instead coming from space itself. But still, many people were not convinced. But this all changed that fateful night of 1833, during one of the most spectacular meteor storms of all recorded history. That night, one of Silliman's students from Yale, a Denison Olmsted, heard a pounding at his door. It was his neighbor urging him to come outside. Olmsted looked up, and the sky was alight. Meteors were falling like snow. After being in Silliman's classes, Olmsted himself became a scientist studying meteors. After the 1833 meteor storm, he wrote the local newspaper and asked observers to submit their observations for further study. But his request soon got picked up by other newspapers all across North America, and soon he was receiving observations from miles around from the entire eastern part of the country. Modern-day meteor science was born. In the coming years, scientists looked at the observations from the 1833 meteor storm, along with past observations. They figured out that these events reoccur at set intervals. They predicted that this meteor shower should repeat again in 1867. This is now called the Leonids, meteors that have come from the comet Temple Tuttle. Still, not everyone was convinced these rocks come from space. A geologist, W.B. Clark, sarcastically said that if we believe Olmsted that meteors are from space, we should also think that they are broken off fragments of comets. It's ironic, because that ended up being true. In the following decades, the comet-meteor connection was becoming more established, and in the late 1800s, something else was occurring that would change meteor science, the invention of the camera. Of course, meteors are hard to photograph. They travel quickly, and you never know exactly where in the sky they are. However, if you set up your camera to take a long exposure, you could get lucky and get a picture of a meteor traveling across the sky. One of these scientist photographers was William Lewis Elkin. He came up with a pretty ingenious way to calculate the properties of these meteors. He set up his camera behind a bicycle wheel. He blocked off half of the wheel, leaving the other half unobscured. Then he took a long exposure as the wheel turned at a known rate. He could then look at the gaps in the meteor trail to calculate how fast the meteor traveled. By setting up two cameras, he was able to calculate parallax to figure out the position and height of the meteors. Pretty smart if you ask me. For some, that same meteor shower that was seen back in 1833, the Leonids, is believed to be one of the most impressive meteor showers. Correlated with Comet Temple Tuttle, it is the strongest every 33 years, corresponding to the years that the Earth travels through the region of space that the comet just visited. 33 years after the 1833 shower, Ernest Temple and Horace Tuttle discovered this comet. 99 years later, in 1965, the Earth came closer than ever to the dust trail behind this comet. That year, for a short period of time, Tens of thousands of meteors fell, sometimes at a rate of 40 per second. 1998 was the Leonid meteor shower that I saw. The rate was not as spectacular as that, but the event is still imprinted on my consciousness nonetheless. I saw about one meteor a minute. Some were as bright as the brightest star in the sky, 
while some were nearly as bright as the full moon. I saw purple meteors, green meteors, red meteors, and gold meteors. Some left trails of smoky plumes, and some I actually saw break up as they traveled through the atmosphere. Something like that you don't forget. The next time a Leonid storm is expected is in 2031, so mark your calendars. But in the meantime, there are several meteor showers year-round. Next time you see a meteor streaking through the sky, remember those scientists and observers throughout the course of history that looked up to the heavens with a sense of sometimes uncertainty, sometimes terror, but always awe. Spark Dialogue Podcast is produced by me, Elizabeth Fernandez. You can find us at the web on sparkdialogue.com, on Facebook and Twitter, or any of your podcasting platforms. Remember, if you're a patron of this podcast, you can check out some spectacular pictures on the Patreon page of Meteors. You can see that at patreon.com sparkdialogue. And if you're not a patron and you want to find out how to join, check out the Patreon page or find out more information at sparkdialogue.com. Thank you for joining us today, and we'll see you in two weeks for another episode. You can read more about the research that I did for this podcast at sparkdialogue.com. Some of these include a paper called The Origin and Evolution of Meteor Showers and Meteoroid Streams by Ewan Williams, The Early Years of Meteor Observations in the USA by Richard Tybee, and How Ancient Cultures Explained Comets and Meteors by Eve McDonald. Links to these and other sources are found in the show notes at sparkdialogue.com. The music you heard was Ethereal Space by Snowflake, Between Worlds by Austin Sater, Nanyang Journey by Even Chu, B34 by Zekweb, and Darkwoods 2 by Even Chu. Links to these songs and more information can be found in the show notes at sparkdialogue.com.